Welcome to Believing the Bible with Scott Lane and Terry Reed of the San Antonio Bible-Based Science Association with a message of hope in today's troubled world based on biblical truths. We hope that today's program is enlightening and inspirational. Welcome to Believing the Bible. This is Scott Lane with Terry Reed and our producer Ed Salswell, all directors at the San Antonio Bible-Based Science Association. We are here to reassure you, you can believe the Bible from the very first verse. Today, we're honored to have Dr. Robert Carter with Creation Ministries International. He has a bachelor's in applied biology from Georgia Institute of Technology. He has taught high school biology, chemistry, physics, and electronics. He also has a PhD in marine biology from the University of Miami. And I read that you've done over 500 scuba dives. This is true. You like it in the water? <laughs> How did you get into creation ministry? Honestly, it was a, a bit of a fluke. I just got my PhD and just moved from Miami back to Atlanta, where, where I wanted to live with my wife and kids. And I was online and I ran into this organization called Creation Ministries International. And I said, they have an office in Atlanta? Well, they did not have an office in Atlanta. They had a PO box in Atlanta. And I sent them an email and I got a phone call two days later from Australia at 9 o'clock at night, and they're like, hey, Rob, PhD, don't go on treaties, let's have a talk, and so I was the first person they hired for the U.S. office. Excellent. Mm. You were here in San Antonio in 2013. We sponsored you to talk with us and yep. also one church school here in San Antonio. Well, we thank you for that. One of the things you went into, which is also in one of your DVDs, is something that the secular community at one point talked about as the Eve syndrome. They no longer use that terminology. But what is the mitochondrial DNA evidence for us all coming from one woman? Well, it is abundantly clear that every human on this planet derives from a single female. And the, the DNA piece that we get from our mothers is called the mitochondrial DNA. It's only 16,000 letters long, but all of them carry it. We only get it from our mom. If you build a family tree and that piece of DNA, it goes back to one person who lived only a few thousand years ago. And it's very, very different from the chimpanzee mitochondrial DNA. So clearly there's one human female who's the ancestress of everyone on Earth today. Has the secular community abandoned the four races or five races attitude that they had several decades yeah. ago? Yeah, the old mongoloid, negroid, caucasoid mm -hmm. words, those are no longer used. That's all couched in racism. Right. Everyone's like, no, we can't use those terms anymore. But they also don't work. Right. Genetically, it, it doesn't work. But if I'm up on research, what they're hyping today is that we came from a group of probably 10,000 hominids. Now, that's with an assumption that there was very flawed DNA, as they would say all DNA was. And they're making that assumption based upon the fact that that's how many there would be, have to have been as a supplement group for us to even survive, to move forward. That number 10,000 is interesting and awkward for them. Mm -hmm. They say that in the whole human race, or in the only humans, they were homo erectus back then in the evolutionary model. We got whittled down to a population of only about 10,000 people and stayed there for a long time. And I think they picked this number 10,000 because if they go less than that, it sounds too biblical. But it has to get small because they're trying to explain how come humans across the planet are so similar to one another. We're all people, black, white, brown, you name it, we're all incredibly similar to one another. And that only happens in a small population. We are one race. That's right. And clearly. Of course, and of course, with what's going on in society today, 
That is something that we really need to echo. Here. The Bible has answers, and the answer to a lot of racism questions. And I wish more people understood what the Bible actually said about the subject. Yeah, our uh, colleague here, Terry Reed, has written extensively on that and pushes that point. We also have a lot of articles on this on creation.com. Excellent. Excellent articles yeah. on, on the background behind it, the history of it, and things like that. There is similar Y chromosome data for human males. What's that? Same thing. All human males on the planet go back to a single male who lived not that long ago. They call them Y chromosome atoms, which is a hat tip and kind of mocking the Bible a little bit, depending on you know which evolutionist is doing the talking. But they got their Bible wrong because that person's Y chromosome, Noah. Noah in the Bible is the male ancestor of everyone on earth today. And he only lived a few thousand years ago. And it did a showing a few thousand years ago. Now, how long? That depends on what model of mutation you want to use. The evolution is using a very slow mutation model. And they do it on purpose. There's a lot of assumption that all mutations have to occur and accumulate slowly or else we'll go, well, well, it's not my problem. We're going to go these things based on some normal mutation rate. But it's slowing down as much as possible to get out of and eat as far back in time as they can get them. So they take them about 100 or 200,000 years ago. But using mutation rates, we can measure in the laboratory why chromosome Noah, mitochondrial leave, only lived a few thousand years ago, not hundreds of thousands of years ago. As background, when I do seminars, we talk about that uh, the normal assumption, and again, this was purely an assumption and not good data, by evolutionists is that the human species only collects something on the neighborhood of less than one mutation per generation, which gives them these long age times. But when you really measure what the mutation rates are, they're closer to 100 per generation. Yes, but the mitochondrial, the white chromosome is only 1% of the genome. Yes. That's the size of the white chromosome, so that's about one mutation per generation in the white chromosome alone. But when you look at people men across the world, we're only separated by a few hundred mutations. So therefore, the mutation rate fits in with biblical time. The underscored point of all of this is that if you have good mitochondrial evidence of Eve, or a primordial woman, and good evidence of a primordial man, in this case you're making the case for Noah, this does point to the real historicity of both Adam, Eve, and Noah. And the Bible. And the Bible itself. You are listening to Believing the Bible. This is Scott Lane with Terry Reed and Ed Salzadel. If you would like to learn more, go to sabsa.org. That is S-A-B-B-S-A dot org. Today we're talking with Dr. Robert Carter from Creation Ministries International. We've had a good discussion in terms of Adam, Eve, Noah, and the Bible all being real history with good DNA evidence to back that up. In the pre-program discussion, I referred to mitochondrial DNA and there being three classes. And I thought during your talk that I heard from you eight years ago that you had talked about that being evidence of the three daughter-in-laws of Noah. Did I get that wrong? Uh, No, you did not get that wrong. But my understanding of this has become more nuanced or more educated, maybe. I've learned a lot in the last several years and did a lot more thinking on this. Okay, educate us. Okay, well, there are three daughters-in-law of Noah, and they are the ancestresses of all women in the world, all men also, but women specifically, because they're the ones who pass on the mitochondria. Mm-hmm. So all ladies in the world go back to three ladies. But that doesn't mean there should be three different lineages, because if two of those women were sisters, they would have carried the same mitochondria. Right. That would make only two lineages. 
if all three women were sisters, or if the mutation rate before the flood was very low, or if all three ladies were closer related, there might only be one. So there can't be 50, but there doesn't have to be three. Mm-hmm. And so when we look at the, the family tree of all the mitochondria, I don't necessarily see some distinct branches. I can put three branches in different places, mm-hmm. but all the mutation we see might be post-flood. Mm-hmm. And that right there might explain why the mitochondrial tree looks very similar to the Y chromosome tree. Because these mutations are popping up in separate populations, like in Africa or Europe or China, in similar ways, and in the populations that are growing at the same rate with similar mutation rates. And therefore, the two trees would follow the same or similar patterns. So I'm just trying to get people to back up a little bit. Say, yeah, it looks like we all came from one woman. However, it doesn't mean there should be three distinct branches. There could be. There doesn't have to be. And the Bible still true. So you're just stepping back a little bit. It still may be true that that you can read three mitochondrial branches into that. But that data is not as clean as we have with Y chromosome and the Eve syndrome mitochondrial data. It's not easy to pick out three lines. And so when I realized that, in the same way, the first thing I ever did when I looked at mitochondria is I compared mitochondrial branches to languages. Because the Bible says God separated everyone according to language. Therefore, the mitochondrial lineages should follow languages. And they don't. And I scratched my head. Awesome. What is the problem? Well, I'm silly. First of all, languages change. Languages go extinct. People groups merge. Hungarian is not a European language. I mean, Hungarians are European. They were given a language by an invading army from the East. Hmm. Their mitochondrial lineage don't match their language. And it's we've given, you know, 4,500 years of history since the flood. There's been a lot of changed language. So my first approach was a bit naive, not realizing how complex everything was. I would say the same thing happened with my approach to the three daughters in law of Noah. There might be three lineages, but they're not straightening atoms. It's not so incredibly obvious you just look at that okay, there it is right there. Yeah, so just back it up a little bit and say, no, the data still fit the Bible if we understand what the Bible is actually telling them. Okay. Uh, in the pre program we talked about the possibility of goat DNA being in line with biblical account and the fact that there may be five identifiable classes of mitochondrial goat DNA. You said that that might tie into this whole discussion. How so? Well, it's a very similar uh, argument. How many lineages should we expect, given the fact that there are seven goats or seven pairs of goats or goat sheep or whatever the ancestors goats and sheep were taken off with the army? But the thing is, Farm animals are usually kept in flocks, and flocks are usually pretty inbred. Mm-hmm. So even if a lot of goats were taken on board the ark, they might have only had one mitochondrial lineage, or two, or five, or seven. Who knows? Right. So, it's, again, it's not a thousand. So the fact that it's less than seven is in line with the biblical account. However, again, this data is not so clean as to we could simply say, well, this five shows that it came from five individual goats. That's right. But see, that's true in so many other areas of science. Science is often indeterminate. You have a hypothesis, and you look at it, and you say, okay, well, the data's it. But it doesn't mean I'm right. It just means I'm not wrong. What I will get from audiences when I do seminars on this differing type of material in science is they'll say, okay, so what? 
What does this have to do with the Bible, the gospel, or anything else? Well, origins is a very important subject for the gospel, specifically because of the way that Jesus and the other New Testament authors treated Genesis as a historical account. I mean, they'll quote from the life of Noah or some event in creation as if it was history in the same way referred to King David. So King David is not debatable in you know, most biblical scholarship. They say, oh, David really lived. And here's his life. Well, the New Testament authors talk about David. They talk about other people in the Bible. They go all the way back to the beginning, and they use a lot of creation imagery and illustrations in the New Testament to make theological points. We say these things aren't historical, but does the theology even mean that? Right. Then we are saying uh, that the Bible at some point was not telling us the truth. Then it comes the question, when does it start telling us the truth? When does the Bible become historical? When it's written as if it was historical? That's a really good question, because there's no obvious change. When you're reading, you go through you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it's all written historically. We're out of time for this program. We will pick this up again with our next program with you. It's been great having you. I want to remind everyone that you can get online with Creation Ministries International and Dr. Carter at creation.com, probably the easiest website to remember that I know of, creation.com. We thank you and goodbye. The SLR Podcast, scroll down until you find Believing the Bible. Please join us again next Saturday for Believing the Bible. I'm Scott Lane, and for Terry Reed, Dr. Carl Williams, and Ed Salzville, thanks for listening, and we hope you found today a reason to believe the Bible.